Well, good evening, everybody. Good Topic tonight is Solzhenitsyn. And I'm going to sort of, I think I'll probably begin by, I'm not going to embarrass people by asking who hasn't heard of him. Um, in a, in a, a healthier world, everybody would have heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is one of the great heroes of the 20th century, one of the most courageous figures of the 20th century, one of the most important figures of the 20th century, and one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. So if we don't know him, um, then uh, it's because the culture is neglecting this, uh, this, this truly giant figure. So I want to uh, ask a few questions, and then I'm going to go into discussing Solzhenitsyn in person, I'll ask a few general questions. So, do great men make history? Or does history make great men? Does history sometimes smother great men? As I don't know how many of you know, Gray's Elegy in a Country Churchyard, one of the finest poems in the English language. But that, in that, the, the poet uh, muses uh, is on a graveyard in, uh, in England and looks at all these unknown people and, and their, their graves and wonders how many of them could have been great if they hadn't been born as a peasant at this particular time in this particular village. Um, so does history smother great men, as Thomas Gray seems to imply in his poem? Well, when we talk about Solzhenitsyn, we have to talk about one or two other uh, uh, ideas. So the Catholic historian Lord Acton famously says that power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Well, uh, I happen to believe that that tends to be true and Solzhenitsyn's life shows uh, how a noble figure can stand up against the corruption of power. So the life of Alexander Solzhenitsyn throws light on these questions and helps us understand not only history and the nature of power, but our own times and the nature of man himself. In other words, this isn't merely academic in the bad sense of that word. Um, it's, uh, it's incredibly relevant to ourselves, to who we are as human persons, as human beings, and to understand our times, our own times. Indeed, I would suggest that understanding Solzhenitsyn will help us understand ourselves. So, who was Solzhenitsyn? Well, there are two, two approaches to this question. Uh, when I, at least when I give a talk, there are two approaches that I feel I need to take, and I'm going to take both of them. One is the subjective approach, Solzhenitsyn's role and impact in my own life. So what Solzhenitsyn did for me. And then the objective uh, approach. Who Solzhenitsyn is anyway, regardless of whether I have existed, uh, and uh, why all of us need to know how important he is. So the second part will be more the biographical but the first part, I want to give, a, if you like, a personal testimony of Solzhenitsyn's power in my own life. Uh, as, was, as Timothy mentioned in the introduction, I am a convert to the faith. Um, 
I've learned since coming to, uh, to the United States that uh, it's compulsory, and I want to be a good American, so I like, I'm going to have to genuflect before this American uh, uh, cultural moray. It's compulsory to uh, stop everything we do at all times, every five minutes, for a commercial break. <laughs> now, I've been speaking for five minutes, therefore this is the first commercial break. And actually, <laughs> um, as Timothy mentioned, that I'm a convert to the faith. I'm a convert to the faith from uh, white supremacist organizations, from racism. I was involved with the loyalist Protestant terrorist organizations in Northern Ireland. I hated the Catholic Church. I hated non-whites. So it's a long, long way from the Catholic Church and say the, the book Race with the Devil, my journey from racial hatred to rational love is at the back there, as well as a few copies of the audio talk that I give on the t topic. So I was a very angry teenager, a very angry young man. I became invo involved in politics, extreme right-wing politics, when I was 15 years old. I joined an organization called the National Front. And I read lots of nonsense, lots of rubbish, lots of... Uh, uh, propaganda that supported this ideology of white supremacy, etc., anti-Catholicism. Um, and in the midst of this darkness, there's always candles in the dark. Candles in the darkness. Um, Chesterton was the most important influence on my own conversion. His political ideas led me eventually to his religious ideas. Also, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In the midst of this darkness and this nonsense I was reading, I used to have a two-hour commute to work. At the age of 16, I began working for the National Front full-time. I was a full-time revolutionary. Now, when you're a young, young idealistic fanatic, that's the perfect job. Um, <laughs> but I didn't have to commute two hours each way every day from one end of London to the other end of London to do the job. So that's four hours reading a day. And I spent many, many hours reading absolute junk that was leading me further and further towards the, the abyss of the, of the racist ideology that I, uh, I, I held. But I also read the first two volumes, the third volume had not been published at this stage, the first two volumes of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, which is his history of the concentration camp system, the uh, labor camp system, uh, under the Soviet communist regime. Uh, gulag is just the word for prison, and archipelago, is, as you know, is a group of islands. And the point is, all over the Soviet Union, this huge country, there are islands of prison camps in the wilderness. So the Gulag archipelago. And I read that, and again, this had a very, very healthy influence. Of course, I read it at the time merely because I was anti-communist. That's why I read it. But of course, Solzhenitsyn is much more than merely an anti-communist. He also is a convert to Christianity, which I had no intention of being at the time. I became aware of, when I got interested in Chesterton's political views and Hilaire Belloc's political views, which are basically the political views of the Catholic Church, as, uh, as uh, seen in encyclicals such as uh, Rerum Novarum by Pope Leo XIII, or Quadragesimo Anno by... Pius XI, or Centesimus Annus by John Paul II, uh, or Caritas in Veritate by Pope Benedict XVI, etc. Um, but Solzhenitsyn basically also has this same political understanding, the same political philosophy, what the Catholic Church calls subsidiarity. 
Look it up in your catechism. Um, but Solzhenitsyn wrote several political works, including Rebuilding Russia, um, that, again, echo and reflect this Catholic understanding of politics and power. Following my conversion, the first book I, I, I wrote, second commercial break, also on sale at the back there, um, was a book called Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton. And I always say that that book was an act of thanksgiving. And it was a twofold act of thanksgiving. An act of thanksgiving to God for giving me Chesterton. But it was also an act of thanksgiving to Chesterton for giving me God. Because if it wasn't for my reading of Chesterton, I probably would never have found God. So under grace, and obviously to God be the glory, under grace, Chesterton was the greatest influence. But all the time, as one of the heroes of my childhood that remained a hero, I mean, obviously, many other people that I worshipped and idolised as ideologues when I was young and foolish. I can't believe how stupid I was when I, in, in those days when I knew I knew everything. Um, <laughs> um, but Solzhenitsyn remained with me as a hero, as a giant. And when I'd only got one book published, just the Chesterton biography, nobody, nothing, nothing else at the time, I wrote to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And to this day, I'm not going to say it's a miracle, but to this day, I have no idea, no memory, how I found his address. Solzhenitsyn is, is very reclusive, or was very reclusive. Um, by this time, he'd returned to Russia. He lived for many years, as you may know, in Vermont, in Cavendish, Vermont, in the United States, before returning to Russia following the fall of communism. And he lived in, basically in a, in a, in a house in the, in, amidst pine, pine woods, pine forest, you know, about a half hour, 45 minute drive outside of Moscow. How I found his address, I have absolutely no idea. But I wrote to him. And I wrote to him, and what I said in my letter was that I am the author of a biography of G.K. Chesterton. That's all I had to claim. I wasn't going to tell him about my political past. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, I'm the author of a biography of G.K. Chesterton, and I'd like to write your biography. And I'd like to write your biography because I don't believe that any of the biographies that have been written about you so far have paid due attention to the importance of Christianity in your life and the importance of your conversion to Christianity. Um, so I wrote the letter fully expecting never to get a reply. It was purely a nothing ventured, nothing gained scenario. But the, the most I really hoped for was a little note from him, basically saying, thanks but no thanks, signed by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And I said, I've got my hero's autograph. That's fine. That was worth sending off a letter for. That was what I was hoping for. So imagine my astonishment when Solzhenitsyn replies in person and says, by all means, come to Russia and interview me and I will cooperate fully in the, uh, in the research and writing of your uh, biography. And he gave me the contact details of two of his sons um, who would serve as, if you like, intermediaries and organizers and translators. He wrote to me in English, um, but basically he then used his sons. Now, again, his sons were all brought up in the United States. Uh, and they went to, uh, I've got to get this right now. Uh, anyway, 
can't remember, I can't actually remember honestly at the moment. I can't remember which Ivy League school they went to. Um, uh, it wasn't Princeton. It's either Yale or Harvard. Um, and also the Eton, which is sort of the poshest private school in England. So they were well-educated in, 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 in the English language. They were fluent in English and fluent in Russian. And I was obviously astonished and delighted and, and, and euphoric that, uh, that he'd replied so positively. I should say, by the way, that Solzhenitsyn had refused to be interviewed by any Western writer at this stage for about, well, about 15 years because he'd been treated so appallingly by the Western media. Um, that he just said in the end, well, every, every time I, I give interviews, you twist my words, you edit me, you, you, you uh, put a spin on it. I'm just not going to bother to talk to you anymore. So I, and why me? Literally, why me? So anyway, armed with this letter by Solzhenitsyn, I went down to my publisher, uh, HarperCollins, in, uh, in London, and waved Solzhenitsyn's letter in front of them <laughs> and said, you have to give me a contract to write this biography. And you also have to give me loads of extra money to go to, to Moscow to interview him. <laughs> and I go, seeing the letter, there was, that was the key. So yes, I got the contract. Yes, I got the money to go to Moscow to interview Solzhenitsyn. Um, but I still had no idea at all, why me? All right, I thought, I, I was trying to think about this logically. You can't possibly have heard of me. I mean, one book published. Um, so I think it must be, the magic word must have been Christianity. Um, you know, that he must have agreed with me that Michael Scammell's so-called official biography was, uh, did not pay due attention to his uh, Christianity and nor had uh, any of the other books. He must have agreed with that. What I didn't realise, that yes, that, that Christianity, the CH word, was important, but there was another CH word that was very important in my letter. And this didn't become clear to me until I arrived at his home. And before I, I set eyes on him, his wife um, showed me around the house a bit and made a point of showing me the collected works of G.K. Chesterton, the Ignatius Press collected works of G.K. Chesterton, a whole shelf of them uh, in Solzhenitsyn's house. So the other CH word that was the magic word, the passport to Solzhenitsyn, was the word Chesterton. So another reason now that I have to be grateful for Chesterton. And then Solzhenitsyn walked into the room and I became a fan. <laughs> it, it was to me, I, I ceased being professional. Uh, it was to me as if Elvis had walked into the room. <laughs> Well, you know what I mean. This sort of figure is iconic, larger than life. And of course, he's, you know, he's with his beard and his high forward. And, you know, he's one of those faces that, that everybody, at least in my generation in the 70s, everybody knew what he looked like. So he walks into the room in the flesh. He's not a photograph anymore. So uh, anyway, I overcame that moment. But then I almost messed things up because what happened, we sat around a table. And he was sitting one end of the table. I was sitting the other. I think it's more of a circular table. He's sitting at one part at another, and then Yermolai was between us, uh, his son, and he was basically simultaneously translating. So uh, I would ask a question in English. Yermolai would then ask it in Russian. Uh, Solzhenitsyn would reply in Russian, and Yermolai would then 
uh, translate instantly to me into English. Now, is that because Solzhenitsyn can't speak English? No, it isn't. I could tell when I was asking, first of all, he's got the collected works of G.K. Chesterton, not in a Russian edition, because there aren't any. I mean, not, not the collected works uh, in Russian. They're, they're in English. But also, I could tell when I was asking questions that he understood what I was saying. You can tell by the eyes, you know, the recognition. And of course, he did live in the United States, albeit reclusively, but he lived in the United States for 20-some years. Um, but the reason he wanted to speak in Russian is that Solzhenitsyn uh, is a great man, and he wanted to make sure that everything he said was exactly as he said it. In other words, he didn't want to reply, making very profound, important, nuanced points in pidgin English. Because if you're what the Anglo-Saxons used to call your word hoard, you know, that's why the prosaic word for it is vocabulary, but your word hoard, that each of us has our individual word hoard. In other words, we have the, the hoard of words that we have is different for each of us. And his word hoard in English was much smaller than his word hoard in Russian. Whereas his son Yermolai had a huge word hoard in both languages from which he could uh, pick as he, as he, as he uh, translated. And then my next mistake, my big mistake, which could have been very costly, was my first couple of questions were about politics. You know, I mean, the whole point was, you know, that there's been too much emphasis on the politics and not enough emphasis on, on the religion. And he stopped. There was an awkward moment, silence, when he said, I thought that you were not going to concentrate on the politics. And sort of I blubbered and said, no, I'm not. I'm, I know, it's just, uh, but I for just a few nightmarish moments, I thought he was going to throw me out. <laughs> and I got all the way to Moscow <laughs> for about five-minute interview with Solzhenitsyn and then get uh, ejected from his home. Anyway, things got better. We got on very well after that. Um, and one of the things I did was to list authors that you don't normally associate at all with Alexander Solzhenitsyn because um, they're favorite authors of mine and I've written on them. And so I mentioned the name of Chesterton, obviously. I now knew that he liked Chesterton, but uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, of course. You can't think of anything more different from the Gulag Archipelago than The Lord of the Rings. They're not too wide as you're going to put, you know, in the same breath. And, you know, he, it was clear that he knew who Tolkien was. I don't think he knew the works very well. But then I quoted so, uh, Tolkien's wonderful words about the Blessed Sacrament. Unfortunately, I can't remember them by heart now. But uh, he, he, in a letter to one of his sons, Tolkien said, I put, before you one of the I put before you the one great thing to love in life, the blessed sacrament. There you will find everything, the summation of all of your loves, and more than that, and he goes on. So I read this to Solzhenitsyn, and he looked at me, and he said, did Tolkien write that? And I said, yes. I said, do you agree? He says, yes, absolutely. I agree. So these moments uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, connecting Solzhenitsyn with people that otherwise he would never be connected with. And then the other thing about him, he has this image in the West as being a stern, Jeremiah-like figure, someone who's a prophet of doom who's a skeptic about modernity. And yet one thing you find out when you actually meet him, he has a wonderful sense of humor. 
there's a glint in his eyes as if he wants to chuckle all the time. His son told me that when, he, when they were growing up, he'd have them literally rolling on the floor hyster in hysterical laughter when he was mimicking famous people. So this is not the Solzhenitsyn that we're used to seeing. It's not the Solzhenitsyn the New York Times is going to show us. But this is the real human Solzhenitsyn, a man of joy, a man of faith, and a man of great humor. But the other thing about it, I looked into his eyes. How many people here have read The Lord of the Rings, by the way? Okay, it's just because I, I, I know I need to know how much I need to explain. But I looked into his eyes. The moment I looked into to to uh, Solzhenitsyn's eyes, and he had wonderful blue eyes. And bear in mind, when I met him, he was just a few months short of his 80th birthday. So he was an old man. But in his eyes, the first thing that struck me was their youthfulness. He looked young. The eyes were alert, agile. So say jolly, there's a glint of humor, a glint of mischief even in them, all on the surface. And then if you held his gaze, which I did, beneath that surface, there seemed to be a depth of suffering, a depth of wisdom, a depth of experience. And of course, I don't know now, coming back to subjective or objective, whether that was really there or whether I was seeing that there because of who I think Solzhenitsyn is. But the experience was real. And what I thought at the time, that's why I asked about the Lord of the Rings, when I looked into his eyes, was Treebeard. That's a character in the Lord of the Rings who's one of the oldest creatures in, uh, uh, in Middle Earth. He's lived for thousands and thousands of years. And when you look into his eyes, on the surface, there's this agile, uh, almost mirthful sense of humor. But the deeper you look, you get thousands of years of memory and experience and wisdom. So that's what I thought when I looked into uh, Solzhenitsyn's eyes. OK, so that's the subjective approach um, to Solzhenitsyn. Now, I don't know how much, some, some of you might not know much about him. You might think, this is great, but who is he? <laughs> so maybe I should have done the talk the other way around, because now I'm going to talk about the objective uh, approach to Solzhenitsyn. Who is the man, regardless of me, regardless of whether he ever entered my life in any way, indeed, regardless of whether I ever existed? Who is Solzhenitsyn? Well, Solzhenitsyn is one of the most important figures in the 20th century, century for bringing down the communist empire the evil empire of the Soviet Union. You can name others. Uh, it gets more controversial. But certainly, you could name Ronald Reagan. You could, you could name Margaret Thatcher. You could certainly name Pope John Paul II, whose historic uh, visit to Poland shortly after he became pope really was the instigation for the rise of uh, the Solidarity Trade Union and, the, uh, and at the beginning of the domino effect that brought the whole Soviet empire down. But you could not list the handful of people that were most influential in bringing down the Soviet Union without mentioning the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So let's go through his life story somewhat. He was a child of the revolution. He was born within a year of the revolution. In fact, one year after the revolution. 
The Bolshevik Revolution, of course, happened in 1917, in October. He was born the following November. His uh, father died um, while he was in the womb of a hunting accident. Um, so he's born into a, a, born as an orphan, basically, brought up by his mother and his aunts. And because he was being brought up in a communist culture, he became a slave or a servant of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, which, of course, in the Soviet Union was atheism. He became a, a, a militant atheist, rejected his mother's Christian faith, remembered seeing icons on the wall in the home, but treated it all as superstitious nonsense. And with the arrogance of youth, he set about writing what he wanted would be a a Tolstoyan epic, an epic in the spirit of Leo Tolstoy. I don't know how many of you have read War and Peace. But um, Solzhenitsyn, as a young man, started writing a sort of a Tolstoy-type epic on the revolution, um, obviously from a pro-revolutionary position. He was a communist. But he says there were three defining moments in his life that brought him to uh, a knowledge of reality. The first was the, when he joined the army. It's now the Second World War. He's a young man. He's, he joins the Soviet army. And he, he, he describes this as the first defining moment because of his experience of life and of war and of the Soviet system and propaganda during the war. Um, I want to actually read, if I can, a little bit from the book, third, third um, commercial break. This is for sale at the back there. Not, this is actually the UK edition, so this one isn't. Um, but uh, actually, it's the original American edition. <laughs> Sorry. But the one up there is the revised edition. Solzhenitsyn, by the way, uh, was a moving target. Most people I write about are dead. And they're, when they're dead, they're fairly safe, because when you put the period at the end of the final sentence or the final paragraph, they're dead, it's all over, the book's finished. But if you write a biography of someone who's still alive, they're still doing things. Although when I wrote my biography of Solzhenitsyn, he was 80 years old, he continued to be very active and very controversial right up to the end. He lived for almost another 10 years. So the, what's at the side of the back there is, is, is the revised edition of this, which has three or four new chapters that does take it up to his death and the legacy thereafter. But, um, but as regards the, the influence of the army on uh, Solzhenitsyn, I just want to read, uh, where are we? 62 to 63. He wrote a wonderful long poem called Prussian Nice that I recommend, where he talks about these things. So this is his experience uh, towards the end of the Second World War, so I think it's early 1945, um, and uh, the Red Army is, approach, is advancing through Eastern Europe, the, the, the German army is on the retreat, and basically Stalin had given the, uh, the Soviet army carte blanche to do what they like with any Germans they saw. So their men kill them, if their women rape them, and kill them if you want. So of course the, so the German population were panicking and, and were fleeing uh, as fast as they could. Solzhenitsyn was part of this advancing army. Um, the impressions were destined to come to dramatic fruition in the battle scenes of August 1914. It's one of his novels but also, and with added power, in his great narrative poem, Prussian Nights. Having reached Niedenburg, now, forgive my pronunciation, but I have German and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Polish. Having reached uh, Niedenburg, now Nitzika, 
on the 20th of January, his unit reached Allenstein, now Olstein, on the 22nd of January, and finally the Baltic, cutting off the German armies to the east on the 26th of January. Although the poem is not autobiography in the strict sense, the verse narrative conveys Solzhenitsyn's impressions and experiences of those fateful days far more evocatively than a mere dry rendition of the facts could achieve. At the beginning of Prussian nights, the jingoistic praise of Russia's glorious advance is soon overshadowed as the fiery fingers groping for revenge claw across the foul witch of Germany. The narrative sweeps and sways almost drunkenly as Solzhenitsyn describes the wanton destruction of villages, churches, farms, and farm animals. This is an exultant chaos. Amid the flames, the narrator almost unwillingly begins to perceive something metaphysically infernal in the physical inferno all about him. It is portentous, evil, temptingly, work of a devil. As Stalin's edict is carried out with gusto, the narrator stands aloof. He has, no he has no vengeance in his heart, but, like Pilate when he washed his hands, will do nothing to quench the flames. Prussian Knight also recounts a sense of inhumanity which exceeds in its shocking precision anything achieved by Wolfred Owen or Siegfried Sassoon in their poetic accounts of the First World War. The narrator comes across a house which has not been burned, just looted, rifled, where he hears a moaning by the, wall, by the walls half muffled. Inside, he finds a mother and her little daughter. The mother is wounded but still alive. The daughter is dead, having suffered beforehand a fate worse than death. She lies lifeless on a mattress, the victim of a mass rape and the narrator wonders how many Russian soldiers had lain on top of the girl's battered body before she died. A platoon? A company, perhaps? A girl's been turned into a woman, a woman turned into a corpse. These are quotes from the poem. The mother, her eyes hazy and bloodshot, has been blinded in the vain struggle to save herself and her daughter. She has nothing to live for and begs the narrator a soldier she can hear but not see, to kill her. Neither is this the only sickening account of mass rape depicted in the narrative. A few pages later, the anarchic invaders come across a rich house full of German virgins. Ignoring the desperate pleas of the women that they are not Germans but Polish. There's a description of the cold-blooded murder of an elderly woman and her bedridden husband. The poem concludes with the narrator finally succumbing to the temptations all around him. He rapes a woman, compliant from fear, who, when the ordeal is over, begs him not to shoot her. Sickened with remorse, and knowing that it is too late to rectify the wrong he has done, he feels the burden of another's soul weighing heavily on his own. The climactic evil he has perpetrated has left him unfulfilled, unsatisfied, all that remains is an anticlimax of guilt, intensified into futility. Okay, I could carry on reading, reading there. I think you get the idea. So you see how Solzhenitsyn talks about this being the first defining moment of his life. How could he come back to the Soviet Union with the same naive, innocent eyes of the youth who believed in communism? 
who wanted to write this idealistic novel about the glories of the Bolshevik Revolution, having experienced what he experienced on the Eastern Front during the war. And the second defining moment in his life was his arrest. Bear in mind he was a communist. It's not as if he was, you know, a, a Catholic or a counter-revolutionary. But his crime was to criticize Joseph Stalin in a private letter to a friend. And of course, in this secular fundamentalist environment, private letters were not private. They were all read by the authorities. And this one passing reference that was not completely praising of Stalin in one private letter to a friend was enough to have him convicted and sentenced to five years hard labor. And indeed, in the labor camps, you, most people in the labor camps did not survive. And I thoroughly recommend, if you haven't read it, that you read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Solzhenitsyn. Slim novel, and it just covers one day in a Soviet labor camp in a, in a, a winter in Siberia. And uh, you imagine multiplying that by 1,500, and you see why very few people survived the experience. But ironically and paradoxically, there's a, there's a chapter in my book called Arrested Development, and there's a paradox and play on words there. Because arrested development, of course, means your development's been stopped. It's been arrested. But actually, what's, what we meant here, and Solzhenitsyn talks about being, being a, the second defining moment in his life, is that it was the arrest that led to the development. Because, again, his eyes were open to the evils of the communist system in the Soviet Union by what he saw after he became a prisoner, his eyes were opened. As they'd been opened on the Eastern Front during the war, they were now opened in the labor camps. And the paradox here, of course, and there's another chapter in the book with this title, Profit from Loss, that there is no progress for the human spirit without suffering, and that comfort is the great corrupter. And ironically, if Solzhenitsyn had not experienced that suffering, both his own and, and, and the suffering of others, his eyes would have remained closed. He would have been blind by his ignorance and would have continued to say uh, great things about a great evil because he knew no better. There was profit from loss, progress from suffering. And the same theme, because the third and final defining moment in Solzhenitsyn's life, just after he is released from five years imprisonment, is he is diagnosed with what is believed to be terminal cancer. He has only a few months to live. And faced with death, he actually found life. Because it was at this time that he um, became a believing Christian, a Russian Orthodox Christian. And again, I can't put it better than to read from the book. Where are we? 
How much do I want to read? Okay, he met someone about this time also who basically was converted to Christianity and had a chat with him and was murdered that night. That was the last time he saw him. Um, in fact, he had matured sufficiently to see through and beyond Kornfeld's universal law of life. The truth, Solzhenitsyn reasoned, went deeper than Kornfeld re realised. To accept Kornfeld's thesis at face value, one would have to admit that those who suffer most are in some way more evil than those who are relatively free from pain. Did that mean that he and the millions of other prisoners in Stalin's camps were more evil than those who had escaped, had escaped their miserable fate? Did it mean that those who suffered an even worse fate, such as torturously slow death, were the most evil people of all? Worse, did it mean that those who committed the torture were less evil than their victims? And what of those who prospered rather than suffered? What of the malicious criminals he had met in various camps over the years? What of the camp guards? Worst of all, what of Stalin himself? Did it mean Stalin was less evil than the millions of innocents he had slaughtered? Surely not. What of the torturers, Solzhenitsyn asked? Why does not fate punish them? Why do they prosper? And now quoting. And the only solution to this would be that the meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. From that point of view, our torturers have been punished most horribly of all. They are turning into swine. They are departing downward from humanity. From that point of view, punishment is inflicted on those whose development holds out hope. End of that quote. Having passed beyond Kornfeld's theory, Solzhenitsyn could look back at it from the other side. From this new angle, he saw that for individuals in their one-to-one -one relationship with the creator, the theory actually held true. Quote, but there, was, but there was something in Kornfeld's last words that touched a sensitive chord, and that I accept quite completely for myself, and many would accept the same for themselves. All alone in the recovery room in the camp hospital from which Kornfeld had gone to his death, Solzhenitsyn passed long sleepless nights pondering with astonishment his own life and the turns it had taken. For the first time, he seemed fully awake, fully alive to the sublime realities at the root of his personal experiences. At last, all the doubts, all the shadows seemed to disappear and everything appeared resolved crystal clear. Slowly, as the interminable minutes passed, he set down his thoughts in rhymed verses. And I know it's not the done thing to read poetry in talks, but bear with me, because this is Solzhenitsyn, basically poem about his own conversion to Christianity. The third defining moment, and of course the most important. The two previous ones, the experiences in the army, the experiences in the prison camps, were merely preparations for this big one. Because it doesn't rhyme in this, this is a translation. It rhymes in the original Russian. When did I so utterly, totally strew the good grain like chaff to the winds and shun those same temples where all through my youth I was lulled by your radiant hymns? My dazzling, book-garnered wisdom proved more than this arrogant brain good could withstand. 
the world with its secrets spread open before me, and fate was but wax in my hands. Each new surge of blood as it pounded within me lured me on with its shimmering hues, while the faith in my heart, like a building deserted, crumbled, soundless, and slipped into ruin. But picking my way between life and extinction, now falling, now scrambling back, I gazed through new eyes at the life I once followed, and gazing, I shudder with thanks. It was not my own intellect, not my desiring, that illumined each twist in my path, but the still, even light of a higher design that only with time I could grasp. And now, as I sit with newfound moderation from the life-giving waters, I see that my faith is restored, O Lord of creation. I renounced you, but you stood by me. So a beautiful poem, even in translation. And you know, T.S. Eliot said in his poem, The Hollow Men, that between the potency and the existence falls the shadow. And that's nowhere is that more true than in translation. That however good a translation, a shadow falls from the original, from the beauty of the original. So if the translation is that beautiful, imagine how beautiful the original is in Russian. It's almost worth learning Russian for just so we can read it. Okay, I've been speaking for a while, so I'm going to basically maybe now accelerate through the rest of his life, because these were the three defining moments. The army, the prison, and the cancer, leading to the conversion. From exile, he decided that um, he was going to expose the Soviet regime, one man by himself. And he wrote a book, One, life, one Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which in a moment after Stalin's death, there was a brief moment when the second fundamentalist regime allowed an element of freedom, a chink in the armor. In that little gap, one day in life of Ivan Denisovich was published. It was hugely successful because, of course, millions of people have been to prison camps. And at last, someone was speaking for them and to them and of them. But then, of course, the doors closed again. The Soviet system again became a totalitarianism. And after that, uh, Solzhenitsyn's books were, were banned. He couldn't get them published. They were published in Samizdat. In other words, illegal pirate editions that were handed out by, by hand. Couldn't be sold. And then they started to be published in the West. They were hugely successful in the West. And then he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in the early 1970s and daren't leave the Soviet Union to accept the award or to, or to give the, uh, his acceptance speech because he thought that the Soviets would not have let him back in again, which was probably true, and therefore he would have been separated from his wife and three sons. He got married, by the way, when he was quite late in life, so although he was by this time was well into his middle age, he had young children who were literally you know, toddlers. So then he reluctantly, uh, was thrown, in the end, was thrown out of the Soviet Union by the, by the Russians. There was an, uh, in the second edition, the revised edition, it's not in here because we didn't know it, following the, uh, the, the, the coming down of the, of the wall, of course, and the, the fall of the Soviet Empire and, the, and, and communism in the East, the KGB secret archives were now open for people to, to survey. 
And what I didn't know when I wrote this, but what subsequently was discovered, is there was an attempt to assassinate Solzhenitsyn with a new uh, biological weapon, a chemical weapon, if you like, that was supposed to be so toxic that if it just touched your skin, you would die within a few days and nobody would know the cause of death. The perfect way of killing someone. So Solzhenitsyn was in um, was shopping in a department store and a day or so later became sick, very sick, life-threateningly sick, and they thought he was going to die. But by, uh, again, by God's grace or whatever, he survived and carried on that assassination attempt. The same chemical uh, was later used, I can't remember his name, Sergei Markov. I don't know if any of you remember uh, Sergei Markov, who was a Bulgarian dissident who was killed in London uh, by the Bulgarian secret police, who were basically taking the orders from the KGB, where he was just stabbed with um, uh, an umbrella, the point of an umbrella. But on the tip of the umbrella was this same chemical. But it had been developed by then, and of course also it pierced the skin. It wasn't just on the surface, and it was presumably more potent, and it did actually kill him. So there was an attempt to assassinate, at least one attempt to assassinate Solzhenitsyn, but in the end, he was so huge in the West and such a co-celebra, as the symbol of someone who has the courage to fight this evil empire, this evil tyranny, that the Soviet Union really daren't kill him. And in the end, they did the only thing that they felt able to do is to throw him out of the country. So he didn't go into exile, he was forced into exile. Um, he always loved Russia and didn't want to, didn't want to desert Russia. And his wife and fam family accompanied him. He lived in Switzerland for a short while, so a year or two, and then came in the mid-1970s to Vermont, uh, where he lived in Cavendish, Vermont, until he went back to Russia in 1994. Um, we could say much more about him. He caused controversy in the West by saying, basically, that, the, that Western decadence and hedonistic materialism and pornography and and media manipulation and propaganda uh, was uh, also evil. And that it, it, to just point the finger at the Soviet Union and say the Soviet Union is evil and we are a free world was just not true. So he actually gave a very controversial address to Harvard University in 1978, uh, the Harvard commencement address, where he criticized the West as well as the East. And the Western media, the liberal Western media, never forgave him for that criticism of them. Um, I just want to finish, I think I just want to finish by giving a, 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 what I think is a very, very encouraging lesson we can learn from Solzhenitsyn's life. And also, I'm happy to take questions as well afterwards. But let's, I want to finish with this. How many people here have read 1984 by George Orwell? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, now, what I love about Solzhenitsyn Solzhenitsyn proves George Orwell right and George Orwell wrong. For those of you that know the book, basically uh, it, it's set in, a, in, a dist in the future, 1984. This was written in 1948, so it's now the past, <laughs> but it was the future then. Written in the future, and by this stage the world basically was divided up into three uh, multinational totalitarian uh, systems. Eurasia, which is basically uh, the Soviet empire expanded. Um, 
uh, help me now, East Asia's China, and that, and then Oceania is uh, the United States and, and uh, that. So the whole world is divided into these three empires, all of which now are secular fundamentalist tyrannies. There's no real difference between any of them. They're all secular fundamentalist tyrannies, and no dissident view is allowed. And the ruler in Oceania is Big Brother. What a nice figure. Everyone likes to have a big brother. And of course, thanks to Solzhenitsyn, the name Big Brother becomes much, sorry, thanks to Orwell, the name Big Brother becomes very ominous. Um, it's a pity that lessons are, uh, are not being l l remembered. You know, that big government leads to Big Brother, back to Lord Acton's uh, refrain, that power tends to corrupt, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And we still live in an age today that believes that big government is the answer to big problems. And big government actually only makes the big problems bigger. In fact, they're usually the cause of the big problems in the first place. But anyway, that's another, that's another talk. <laughs> but the, the, the key is in, 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 in uh, George Orwell's 1984, of course, Winston Smith, the hero or protagonist, tries to do what he can to retain some elements of freedom. He goes to antique stores so he can just get these little bits of the past. It's just some kind of way of touching a world that was free before this totalitarianism came along. But in the end, he's completely crushed by the state. Not just crushed as in killed, in which case he'd be a martyr, that could be good. Crushed in the sense that he eventually renounces his own belief in freedom and he eventually accepts and embraces Big Brother. He's brainwashed into submission. Big Brother wins. The small man is crushed. Solzhenitsyn, on the other hand, lived in a regime where Big Brother, Uncle Joe, Stalin, was the ruler, where, depends upon which historian you listen to, but somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 million people killed by him during his reign of terror. And yet Solzhenitsyn is not crushed, he's not brainwashed, he emerges as a convert to Christianity who outlives the Soviet Empire. Big Brother comes crumbling down, comes falling down. Solzhenitsyn is still standing. Solzhenitsyn always said and always believed he would return home to Russia after the fall of communism. That became a reality. So the, the most marvelous thing about Solzhenitsyn's life is that truth is stranger than fiction. And truth, in this case at least, has a much happier ending. Thank you very much. <laughs> if anybody has any questions for me. When did he die? He died in uh, 2006, I think. So fairly recently. Because oh, I've got the old edition here, he was alive when I wrote this. It's in my book there. <laughs> but I think it was 2006. Living where? He was living in Russia when he died. At his home, the home I visited him, he was still living in, in, at that place when he died. Yeah. What's his reputation now in Russia? Well, you know, uh, there was... The, 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 when there was a euphoria, a, what would best be called a drunkenness, following the fall of the Soviet Union. 
And Solzhenitsyn said, you know, people say that, that depict me as being anti-West. He said, I'm not anti-West. I see uh, Russia as being part of Western civilization, as part of the West. He said, if the, if the Iron Curtain had come down and the cream of Western culture had come over it, I would have rejoiced. He said, but what happened was the Iron Curtain went up and all the dregs and scum of Western society seeped in at the bottom. And so basically, what you, you had a situation in Russia where they, they all got drunk on a hedonistic philosophy. They all were enjoying the freedoms that the, they weren't allowed to have before, because these freedoms are in themselves slaveries. Um, you're lurching basically from the, from the uh, frying pan into the fire. Um, and so for a long time, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Solzhenitsyn was not liked at all. Um, and it was said that, you know, he was irrelevant to the modern Russia. But then I talk about this in the revised edition there. Uh, but then, more recently, there was a dramatization of his uh, a novel, a film, a film adaptation, uh, it was a TV adaptation of uh, his novel, uh, First Circle. And on the first opening night of that, the other major network, Soviet TV network, put an Arnie Schwarzenegger film on at the same time, I don't know which one it was. Um, uh, but I think more than twice as many people watched the Solzhenitsyn uh, adaptation of the, uh, the First Circle than watched the Arnie film. And now the, the, the greatest coup de grace recently is that the Soviet government, well, sorry, not Russian government, get my language right here. The Russian government has now um, asked Solzhenitsyn's widow to uh, authorize an abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago, this giant work that Solzhenitsyn uh, wrote to catalog the horrors of Soviet communism. The Russian government asked Natalia Solzhenitsyn to actually uh, oversee an abridged version shorter version. And the reason they wanted that is that it's now compulsory reading for school children in, in Russian high schools. So is he relevant? Well, yeah, very much so today. Yeah, if only we could get you know, every US high schooler to read the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah, uh, he, he was a Russian Orthodox believer. And I asked him about, um, uh, about uh, his religious affiliation. And he said uh, that he, uh, he admires uh, the Catholic Church. He has historical quibbles. Um, not so much about, you know, Constantinople and all that far back stuff, but uh, how the Vatican was fraternizing with the, the communists immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and, you know, that angered him. And when he met John Paul II, uh, he brought this up to John Paul II. And John Paul II, of course, is a Pole. He understood all that. And says he agreed completely that was, that was uh, uh, a black mark on 20th century church history. Uh, but he had nothing but great admiration for John Paul II. I think he said John Paul II was full of light and was a hero uh, against communism, um, so, uh, and so he had very respect for the Catholic Church, but he said that for Russia, orthodoxy is the religion. Um, and of course, there's two, there's two approaches from a Catholic perspective to that. 
either that you uh, try to evangelize Russia uh, from a Catholic perspective, or you uh, continue to pray uh, for un union between East and West. Because unlike, um, excuse me, unlike Protestantism, I'm going to be controversial here, but this is just what the church teaches. Um, unlike Protestantism, which is a heresy, uh, that orthodoxy is part of the Catholic Church. That's why we talk about the Orthodox Church being in schism, separated from Rome, but they're Catholics. Um, whereas Protestants are not Catholics, they turned their back on Catholicism. Um, so we have to pray for a, uni a union between East and West as regards Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, so I have a question here first, one, one at a time, sorry. Solzhenitsyn was completely convinced that communism would collapse because he thought it was uh, an, uh, an, uh, an impractical system. Um, in fact, he would have agreed with the words of Chesterton. In 1931, Chesterton gave a lecture tour of North America. And one of the talks he gave in, in the US and Canada was uh, on the title, uh, on the, the topic was the Culture and the Coming Peril. And he says, bear in mind this is 1931, so it's only 14 years after the Bolshevik Revolution. He said, I expect many of you think I'm going to talk about the coming peril, being Bolshevism. But uh, the coming peril is not Bolshevism because the best way of destroying a utopia is to try it. Right, so that, but then, so that, and I completely agree with that, Solzhenitsyn completely agree with that, and, and history has proved that to be true. But, and this is the sting in the tail, he said the coming peril is not Bolshevism, it's standardization by a low standard. And that's what we're seeing, of course, in the West and everywhere else, this vulgarization of everything, a dumbing down to a primeval soup of inanity and banality, um, uh, a hatred of virtue, a hatred of culture, hatred of history. And it's all purely about self-indulgence of the individual. Well, I, we have to be careful about ter terms here. A big government has always been a problem throughout human history, before Karl Marx came along. Um, the problem is big government. But the communist system, the, the, trying to put Marxism, I mean, dogmatic Marxism, the teaching of Karl Marx, okay, into practice has fallen apart. It's fallen apart in two ways. It fell apart economically in, uh, in uh, the Soviet Union and, the, and Eastern Europe, but it just it, it became, uh, should we say, metamorphosed into communist capitalism in China. Uh, but the point is that China is obviously no longer a communist country. But it is a big government totalitarianism. But, you know, that, but they, they come in many different shapes and, uh, and sizes, uh, big, big government uh, tyrannies. Um, but dogmatic Marxism has been tried and has failed. Big government as being a big problem 
uh, and it becoming a bigger one, absolutely. I would say one thing, however, about Russia, and I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to give the impression that I think the Russian government is great, because I don't think the Russian government's great. Mm -hmm. But there was um, um, a militant feminist uh, organization that stripped naked, and you may have read this in the Western media, uh, that stripped naked in a Russian basilica, Russian Orthodox basilica, to protest for homosexual rights and lesbianism and, and what have you. Um, well, the Russian government passed a law to make it illegal to commit sacrilege in places of religious worship. Now, one wonders whether the federal government of the United States would actually protect the Catholic Church the way that the Russian government collect, um, protects the Russian Orthodox Church. So we have to be careful about, um, you know, seeing things, uh, you know, we have to see the deeper nuanced side of things. You had a question? Well, it's certainly true that the KGB basically, when, when the Soviet Union, came, Soviet Union came to the end, that the high-ranking KGB operatives basically just got together with the mafia and carved the country up. That's absolutely true. One of the, one of the last 10 years of Solzhenitsyn's life was campaigning against basically that scandalous uh, carving up of the Russian economy by uh, an unholy alliance between former KGB operatives and, and, um, and um, uh, the, the mafia. But let's, let, me just, let me just try to say something here. I, 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 I may be being, being controversial, but that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that what we should be doing uh, is avoiding uh, a them and us scenario, whereas America's the land of the free and the home of the brave, and Russia's the land of slaves and mafia bosses. Uh, you know, we can say the same about China or Islam. What we need to be doing is getting the United States of America in order. If we want to convert people to an American way of life, let's make the American way of life something worthy of converting to. So we've obviously got lots of problems with our own big government here, lots of problems with our own big brother, which is getting bigger. And I think we should be looking at getting our own house in order rather than throwing stones at other people's houses that, I agree, are also not in order. But uh, anyway, it's a bit of controversy. Is there any American writer that's playing any role resembling Solzhenitsyn at this point on our behalf? Well, the first thing I think I'll probably have to say there is that I'm steeped in the past, which means I'm an old fogey. Um, as I get older, I even look more like it. When I was, when, 20 years ago, I was a young fogey. Now I'm an old fogey that looks like an old fogey. I, I'm steeped in the past. What, what I'm saying is I've had my aerials removed. I had the operation. We got rid of our TV. Um, I don't surf the web for what's happening in the news. I uh, go to the Daily Telegraph's website occasionally to see what's going on. But normally I, I don't get beyond the obituary section. <laughs> but my first flag is the obituary. Who's died? Um, <laughs> it's become my biographer, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in human beings and human lives. So... Um, 
So, you know, and, but occasionally I also look at the headlines. But really, you know, what's happening as regards the contemporary scene outside of Catholicism, uh, I really would not be the person to ask. I probably know far less about that than most of the other people in the room here, so I would not be the right person to answer the question. Okay, maybe two more questions if you have them, otherwise we'll call it a day and you can spend loads of money you can't afford at the book table. <laughs> it's Christmas! That's what Christmas is about. Forget Jesus, it's about spending more money than you can afford. We know that. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Thank you.